0: you're listening to members of the jury the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice where the passion players and consequences are real each episode we examine current events happening in the system from the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform we bring those stories here to you the members of the jury because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Happy Freedom Friday, members of the jury, and thank you so much for tuning in. We truly appreciate everybody who is listening and for the support that they are giving the show. Today's trial breakdown is such an amazing case, and I cannot wait to get into the facts of it. The overarching theme of today's episode is grit. You see, to be a criminal defense attorney, especially a trial attorney, requires grit. Every day, in every case, we are theoretically supposed to lose. That is if the the police do their job correctly, the district attorneys or prosecutors do their job correctly, and if the judges do their job correctly. Theoretically, every case filed should end in a conviction. Except... Every single day, there are acquittals across the country. And that's because people don't always do their job correctly. Now, good or even great trial attorneys must have grit because a trial in and of itself is extremely difficult. But when you add in the factor that every single trial, your opponent is the big bad government with all of their resources, well, Not everyone is willing to take their matters to the box. However, today's guest, well, he is full of grit. And he did what two previous attorneys failed to do because they were too afraid. He took a terrifying, stacked felony complaint to the box. Joining me all the way from Massachusetts is private defense attorney Joseph Simons. Joseph, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hi, Lucas. Thanks for having me. I'm Joe Simons, and I practice criminal
1: defense law, uh, which I've done for about the past 10 years in Massachusetts. And I've had the privilege of taking a lot of cases to trial, and I'm happy to be here to discuss in depth one of those cases.
0: Well, we're really excited, and uh, thank you so much for spending a Freedom Friday with us to tell us about one of your trial victories. You know, I do want to note that Joseph is a very, very seasoned trial attorney. He's take he's had cases that involved armed home invasion, drug distribution, rape, and unlawful sales of firearm. He was actually deemed a top 100 trial attorney by the National Trial Lawyers. So we are very fortunate to get his insight and some of his skills of the trade. So, Joseph, I want to start off with talking about this case. Um, I had an opportunity to review some of the aspects of it. And the thing that caught my attention first and foremost was just the number of charges that your client was facing in this case. And my observation of the complaint showed that it was a 20 count complaint. When you're looking at such a stacked complaint, how do you even start to dissect it, let alone prepare for trial?
1: You know, sometimes it can be overwhelming when you've got this number of charges, because as you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, sometimes you get cases that might only have one count or a couple of counts. Uh, A couple of things. One is my first thought is this is a case that the prosecution is really going after my client for, meaning that for them to charge somebody with this number of counts, it means that they really want this person convicted. They really want to send this person to jail or or at least have a conviction. So um, that's the first thing. I know we've got our work cut out for us. And secondly, just trying to wrap my head around what conduct constitutes which allegation can be a minefield. I mean, it's not always clear cut in the complaint itself. So you have to sort of match up. And I had to do my best of looking at the complaint and looking at the police report and trying to match all right, which conduct matches each complaint, because some of them are duplicative. There was, for example, five counts of failing to report an unauthorized firearm or three counts of impersonating a police officer uh, and so on.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I know it might be a little long winded, but uh, if you could, for the members of the jury, give us a little rundown of the complaint and By your calculations, what was what did that amount to like the maximum type of exposure your client was then facing?
1: Sure. So, the first five of the 20 complaints were failing to report an unauthorized firearm. Um, Those were related to firearms that were uh, Glock firearms. So, this in Massachusetts, anyway, there's certain firearms that only law enforcement officers are authorized to have. So, um, I'll get into more detail, but that's first five counts then there was a sale of a firearm to a person under 21 because again in massachusetts you have to be at least 21 to have a license to carry firearms and to have one Um, then there was multiple counts of possession of a large capacity firearm and that has to do with the amount of ammunition that goes into a given firearm so there was uh counts seven through uh, 11 were duplicative then there was putting a false statement on A firearm application times three, Uh, then there was selling or transferring of a large capacity firearm, and then there were three counts of impersonating a police officer, and then one other false statement on a firearms license application. So, twenty, like you said, twenty counts altogether. And in terms of the maximum exposure, you know, it's hard to say how much the client would have gotten, but certainly. Many of them carried uh, a significant time. So, working backwards, the impersonating a police officer is up to a year in jail for each count. Possessing a large capacity firearm, I believe, is five years each count. Um, failing to, I'm sorry, selling a firearm to a person under twenty one is up to ten years in prison. And uh, I'm just picking a few, but you know, you could imagine there's there's a lot of exposure as a maximum, and even as a practical number that might not really be the maximum, you, you'd certainly see jail time for this type of case and probably prison time.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's from just from the complaint alone, we have unlawful possessions, unlawful sales, uh, unlawful impersonating. Like what a, you know, quite frankly, intimidating complaint to for not only you as the defense attorney to have to navigate through but for an individual to be charged with and and then as you said at a minimum looking at it potentially a decade in prison so you know what was it do you think before we you know we're just about to get into the to the openings but you know what was it do you think that was the the biggest difference between you know you had indicated to me in the pre-show that your your client had actually had two prior attorneys before you became, uh, you came on board that, you know, were basically advocating that this wasn't a triable case. Um, it was almost impossible to overcome, you know, what were some of the things that you initially saw that you said, no, you know, this is a matter that, that can be taken to the box.
1: Well, you know, first of all, in terms of the intimidating part, the client had never been in trouble before. This wasn't the repeat offender. This was a person who, uh, was in his late 30s he had a family he had you know never been in trouble so it's not just uh, an intimidating but uh, first foray into the criminal justice system and he was a person of color too which i think played some small role in this it's hard to say how tangible that was but i think it did and so um you know when, when i looked at this case the client had already been on his second attorney and that's often a red flag that this might be a difficult person to work with maybe he doesn't like to accept the advice that reasonable counsel could be giving him and this is a guy that i had only known as a constable and in massachusetts what a constable usually does is serving paperwork oftentimes it's serving complaints or serving divorce paperwork and that's pretty much it so i would have him if i needed a subpoena served i would have him serve subpoenas and at one point when we were just shooting the breeze and talking about court in general, he mentioned, hey, uh, I never told you this, but I've got this case that I'm facing. And when he showed me, I was very surprised because this isn't the type of person that uh, I would have expected to be in this type of trouble. So anyway, what struck me about it is his conviction in his mind that he felt like he was being unfairly charged and had done the conduct that he was accused of but that it didn't amount to crimes that he had actually done a good amount of research on his actions before taking those actions and whether or not it's advisable, he thought that they were lawful. And so he really felt so strongly that I took some time and listened to him. And he pointed me to statutes that I had never had any reason to look at, such as what is a constable in the first place. And so that really took my attention and, um, that 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 kinda hooked me in.
0: You know, you said something to me that I think rings super true to those of us that, you know, are really in it for the right reasons and, and truly aspire to to do jury trials. And that's that client confidence and, and conviction. I, I myself have been more or less proven wrong, so to speak, solely because of a client's conviction and confidence to to take their matter to the box, despite being advised by a you know a licensed attorney that there are some issues with the case, and you know they understood the risk versus reward analysis, and ultimately it was their confidence in in just their acts, so to speak, or their own righteousness that that was very empowering and even against counsel we've taken matters to the box and, and had success, so that can definitely be a factor that's a like you were saying, kind of initially a good telltale sign of of kind of what type of client you're interacting with, so I want to go ahead and start getting us into the trial. I, I could only imagine somewhat of the difficulties of just getting this trial prepped and ready, selecting the jury, um, obviously just hearing the again an intimidation of the complaint, how you even overcome the jury selection process just from hearing some guy who's charged with this amount of crimes and in, and these kind of categories. But I just kind of want to jump right to the opening statement. What would you say the prosecutor or how would you say the prosecutor framed their opening statement in, in a way that was favorable to them?
1: Yeah, I remember uh, when the prosecutor opened and I felt like I was still as confident as you can be. I mean, I'm, I'm there, I'm ready. But I remember thinking, oh boy, this is really a tough one to go against. He had in his arsenal the fact that my client had already spoken with the police. And as you know, as a fellow defense attorney, that's something that usually makes it harder for our clients. Once they talk to the police, especially if they've been given their Miranda warnings, um, those statements are usually not helpful to them. So the prosecutor was able to basically go, you know, count by count and explain that you're going to hear that this client had already talked to police and basically admitted to most of the conduct that he was being accused of. And so that obviously hearing that, having the jury hear that as the first statement, then the first advocacy was difficult to sort of overcome and really required a a different type of framing than you would in a typical case where it's, you know, most cases you're trying to say your client didn't do the conduct. This was a little different because it was more so trying to convince the jury that either he was able to do what he did lawfully or at least there was enough ambiguity that any benefit should go to his favor.
0: You're right with regards to the client statements. One, if you're a potential client or you find yourself in a situation, do not talk to the police, ask for an attorney. You will not be able to outsmart them. I have had, I've seen too many cases where Clients think that they can outsmart the police or talk their way out of a situation, and that just doesn't happen. In fact, unfortunately, in my opinion, because nationally cops are able to employ what's called the re-technique, where they're able to legally lie to you, we see time and time again how false confessions are or – Truthful confessions are then coerced to then amount to some type of of criminality and and you're one hundred percent right that when a prosecutor has what they believe is a, more or less of a confession, they are going to put that potential or what they believe to be the confession on a pedestal and and slam that. Uh, time and time again to the members of the jury because they think that that is such such gold. So I'd be interested to see then how you rebuttaled their argument since you had alluded to you really weren't contesting any necessary elements of the facts, but more so you just saw a different legal approach to the analysis that should be done. How, how Give us a breakdown on how you uh, explain that to the members of the jury.
1: Sure. Well, it might be helpful if I give a little bit of a framework of what the the actual facts were of the case. So the client, as I mentioned, was a constable. And in Massachusetts, even though most constables only serve paperwork, um, this guy, he was a smart guy. He also did tax preparation. um, And then he, he became interested in being a constable, but he did a lot of research and as did I leading up to the case. So constables predated police departments in Massachusetts. They initially were like the police. They would make arrests. They would enforce the law and then, of course, police departments came into being, but the laws around constables stayed pretty much intact for hundreds of years. So, in Massachusetts, even to this day, constables have the ability to effectuate arrests in criminal cases. They can transport prisoners, and then they can also make civil arrests for capiases if there's a civil warrants. And most people don't know it. I didn't know about it, um, and as I'll tell you in a little while, the lead detective and even a ATF agent who was involved in the case didn't know it either. Um, So but what this constable did is he created sort of a law enforcement agency. He he collaborated with other constables in a nonprofit organization that he created, and he was the the chief uh, of that agency. And then he had some other constables working for him, including one current police officer in a nearby town who on his downtime served as a constable. And so what this client did was, one, he obtained weapons or firearms, I should say, that were law enforcement only. So in Massachusetts, Glock uh, pistols are only available to police officers or law enforcement agents. And because at least some of the statutes uh, count constables among law enforcement, The client had read the statutes and believed that he was allowed to consider himself law enforcement and he actually procured these uh, multiple firearms from an out-of-state dealer i think it was somewhere in vermont but he did it he explained who he was he never pretended to be a police officer he did say he was law enforcement but he said he was a constable so he got these so that was the basis for the counts of having the uh firearms then he Distributed them and didn't register them as a a person in Massachusetts. Solely, you have to do it. Like if I had a gun, I have to register it. If I give you a gun and you're in Massachusetts, I got to transfer that gun and register it to you. Um, If you're a law enforcement agent, you you don't have to follow those same rules as long as it's within the scope of your job. So for him, he didn't do that, but he thought he was following the law. Um, One of those people who he gave the gun to was under 21, but if you're a police officer or law enforcement officer, you're okay, because it's within the scope of your job as a law enforcement officer. He even created this like, piece of paper, thin um, type of license. I mean, it was a complete creation, but he cited the right law. He said, you know, you are entitled to carry a firearm under this license that I'm authorizing you as chief of this law enforcement agency, and gave it to this, uh, I think he was a 19 year old young man, and so that person had the gun, you know, so it was duplicative, not duplicative, but they really hammered him like every single count they could find. They they charged him with and with regard to impersonating a police officer, there was the procurement of the guns. There was a few other actions that he took that he did in his capacity as a law enforcement agency. And since the prosecution didn't believe he was a law enforcement agent, they they found that this impersonation of a police officer seemed to apply uh, to him. So that's more or less the, the overall facts. And so my opening statement really had to do with that this is a unique case. Unlike any case you probably see on TV or hear about, we're not here to argue that my client didn't do what he's accused of. We're here to determine whether or not he was able to do what he did lawfully. And so that was a really interesting opening to try to have to frame that um, and to ho- hope that the jury would keep their minds open as they were listening to the facts. And, you know, anytime guns are involved, it's just, you know, a lot of people hear the word gun or firearm and they they have a, a, just an emotional response to it. And it's scary. And it's something that a lot of people, unless you're used to growing up with guns
0: or being around them it's a scary thing. And that's what I was wondering about too, was how much this was going to be about, quote unquote, the guns, right? Because you're 100% correct. Like any crime that's used with a gun is going to be alarming to jurors. The moment you then put the word unlawful blank gun It's even more alarming. And actually, I just can't get over the fact that there were, you know, more over 10 charges that resulted uh, in unlawful gun either purchasing or or furnishing. And I know exactly what you mean with every little opportunity potentially to create a charge. It seems like the prosecution took advantage of. So – I'm super interested to see how the prosecutor responded in their case in chief after you gave that opening where you pretty much conceded that, look, based on the facts that you're going to be given, you know, those what those are what happened. It's when you're applying the facts to the law, which is one of the jobs of the jury, where we all disagree. And that's not normally what you hear from I think, a defense attorney or, or even the way that to present a case because, you know, if there is a lot of legal issues, there are remedies for that that don't require jury trial. So the fact that you're, you know, going in through this jury trial where you're pretty much arguing that, like, look, the court and the prosecution are just applying the law wrong. That's what this case is about. And at the end of the day, that will be their job. So let's get into the prosecution's case in chief. Despite you giving that opening that you gave, did they start to really just still focus on the facts or were there any ways that they then tried to negate your defense by addressing some aspects of the law? Explain that to us. Well, uh,
1: shortly before we had gone to trial, we had tried to get the case dismissed based on the, just the legal framework away from the facts. And we lost on that and a judge denied that motion. And then we appealed it to the appeals court in an interlocutory appeal And the appeals court declined to hear it, basically saying, look, if your client is convicted, then we'll take it up on appeal. You don't have a right to be heard. And even just interestingly, right before trial, the day of trial, judges always want to know, hey, is this going to plead out? Is there any chance of resolving it? And in that case, we actually tried to resolve it because the client was nervous. I mean, we tried to to see if we could do what they call a continuance without a finding. In Massachusetts, basically, that is a way for a defendant to say, look, I'm agreeing There's enough." that a jury could find me guilty. But in exchange, the judge will continue the case without a finding of guilty for a period of time, maybe a year, maybe two years. And if you stay out of trouble, you're on probation, the case will be dismissed. So I remember even that morning, we tried to do that. And I remember the judge saying, you know, these are pretty bad facts. I can't imagine, even though your client doesn't have a record, I can't imagine giving him that benefit. Although I I think he he may be a good person. these These facts are just too bad. So um, that made the decision a lot easier for the client. He, you know, then we went to trial. We went next door in front of a different judge, picked the jury and and all that. So getting back to your point of or your question rather of how the prosecutor responded, given that we're conceding more or less the facts, he tried to bring out anything he could to, whether my client was misleading. And he tried to make the the pitch that my client, yes, he did say he was a constable, but didn't he also imply that he was a law enforcement agent? Didn't he sort of leave out that he wasn't a police officer and tried to make any sort of omission into a, a suspect move by the client, even though it came out that the client really hadn't misrepresented anything, if, if anyone took it a different way, it wasn't because he claimed to be something he wasn't. So that was his strategy for each each person that he called as a witness. He tried to get out that there was some uh, suspect nature of either an omission or, or some misleading statement by the client to try to prove that the client really did know what he was doing was wrong and, and really was wrong, really, more importantly.
0: Now, I know you earlier, you had mentioned a, a couple different people who who were essentially involved in the investigation. What was like a short list or some of the more important witnesses that he did ultimately call at trial? Because as we know, not everyone who's involved in the investigation is ultimately called as a witness. Yeah.
1: So that's a good question. And I, I think um, i give you kind of a short version is one was the, the young man who was 19 or so at the time who had gotten the firearm. So he explained the circumstances under which he was given the firearm and this piece of paper from the client to authorize the firearm. There was the There was a woman from the criminal justice information systems, which is the government agency in Massachusetts that uh, tracks firearm transfers and registrations to show that the client hadn't registered the guns as he would as an individual. The two main witnesses for the government was a state police lieutenant who was the lead detective or lead lead police officer. And then there was someone from the ATF, the uh, alcohol, tobacco and firearms federal agency, even though it was a state case, who was involved in the investigation and testified. Um, so I, I would say those were the two biggest prosecution witnesses.
0: One of the things that you said that caught my attention, and I'm interested to see if, if the prosecutor expanded on it, is it, it seemed like the prosecutor was really trying to hone in on, on the client kind of f- falsely acting as a law enforcement agent, was it because – I mean, am I right in thinking that if the prosecutor was able to establish that, then that really negated your argument because then you you weren't able to necessarily argue that being a constable even applied because the prosecution is then arguing like this has nothing to do with being a constable. Like it's all fraudulent because he always held himself out to be a law enforcement officer.
1: Yeah, I mean, most of these charges don't require specific intent, although the impersonation of a police officer did. Uh, But a lot of the the firearms charges don't require that. But he tried to make the point: it doesn't matter what the client thought; it's whether or not he his conduct violated the law. So I think his theory, though, had to be because he knew my theory was that the client thought he was doing the right thing, and there's some law that suggests that at least it's ambiguous, and, and perhaps the client was right. I think he. He probably rightfully so thought that he had to show that the client maybe took advantage of misunderstandings that he had in terms of conversations with people, like when he was procuring the firearms or when he was talking to the person at the state agency about whether or not he had to register the firearms because he was proactive. I mean, he talked to this the state agency person. He talked to people. He filled out paperwork. So there was a, a number of things that showed that, that he did the actions and Every time you look at an objective uh, document, for example, the order that was placed with the firearms, with the Glocks, showed exactly what he was, showed his name, showed his position, showed his nonprofit agency. The prosecutor really wasn't able to get out anything objective. But in terms of the conversations, I think they did try to slant it and they got a little bit out that maybe he wasn't as forthcoming as the prosecutor would argue he should have been. Um, because if they believed that he wasn't forthcoming or he was misleading, then I think the jury could have believed that he didn't even think what he was doing was right in the first place.
0: You had also mentioned earlier that the prosecution was basically weaponized with a a client statement. Did you feel that they try to take any of his statements out of context or skew it to his detriment because obviously we're prohibited? They're, They're able to cherry pick certain parts of of a client's statements to introduce but preclude us from from getting all of the statement in without having to essentially have the client testify for evidentiary reasons. So I know that, that that's a, a a major tactic that they use when they have statements. Was, did you feel that that was the case or not really because this, the client was always just so straightforward about his position?
1: No, they did. And, and in fact, just like all cases, the at least here, the prosecutor doesn't know if the client's going to testify. So that right. was a surprise to everyone but me and my client. So yeah, they did try to pick apart things that in the conversation between my client and the police that that might've sounded bad. Like, you know, the police would say, well, you knew that these were law enforcement only, right? And he would say yes. And they would take just that part and not the part of, well, yeah, but I thought I was law enforcement. Yeah, but I was relying on this statute. And so they would really pick apart these uh, snippets that sounded bad in terms, they almost sounded like the client admitted that he did something wrong when in fact there was a whole bunch more. And and you, and as you said, you as the defense lawyer, we really are precluded from having a lot of our clients' statements because they're deemed self-serving and they're not admissible unless the client decides to testify. So had the client not testified, I think we would have been at a a pretty big disadvantage. Or if this was a case where the facts were really in dispute with, you know, did he or didn't he? I think that would have been very difficult to overcome as well.
0: Was the decision for your client to testify, and we'll obviously get more into that when we go into your case in chief, was that something decided and talked about pre-trial or was it because or a result of the prosecution? Cherry picking the statements and the way that they were able to then present those cherry pick statements to the jury where client realized, look, I really need to explain myself in the full context of the statement.
1: In this particular case, the client had wanted to testify and he felt strongly about it. And so given that it's the client's choice, he was always going to testify. Um, in a lot of cases, you, you don't necessarily know, you know, I, I try to prepare with clients before just in case, and sometimes it's a last-minute decision based on how the evidence comes in. In this case, he was just felt like he needed to say his piece because he was so strongly that, that he did the right thing and, and that by the jury hearing him and, and observing him, they would, you know, I don't know, that he would come across well. So he, in this case, he, he knew
0: from the beginning. That makes sense. And so then, let me ask you this, you know, again, going back to your opening and and us establishing that we're really kind of taking a very unique approach to defending the case. How did you think the cross examinations went? Did you think that there was any points of like real adversary or contention? And, and what, if anything, was most surprising from the prosecution's case in chief or any of their witnesses?
1: Uh, to the first part of the question, I think in terms of the, my cross-examination, the, the two biggest surprises I had, and I think the two points that landed quite a bit were the lead detective and the lead, uh, the ATF agent, both of whom were you know seasoned veterans of law enforcement and had been invested many hours into the case. Uh, neither of them knew much about constables. And since part of our theory was intertwined with what constables could and couldn't do. I was surprised when I asked both of them individually, isn't it true that constables are considered law enforcement under, you know, X statute. And I think one of them may have known that one of them, you know, didn't know it. And the one that knew it, I think that's tried to differentiate, well, that has to do with some other set of statutes that don't really apply here. Um, but then there's there's a lot more specific statutes, and neither of them knew, for example, that constables were allowed to make arrests in criminal cases, or that they could transport prisoners, or that they had certain abilities that uh, exceeded what police officers are allowed to do, which went to my theory that constables were law enforcement and thus able to do a lot of what My client did. So I was just surprised given that they were so invested in the case and the prosecution was so invested and charged him with everything they could think of. I think those two points really uh, were surprising to me. And I think they hit the jury with, well, wait a minute, these guys don't even know. And maybe there's some, maybe there's something to to what the defense is saying.
0: I have to imagine that that had an impact on the jury. I I mean, law enforcement officers, in most criminal cases are are deemed i think to more or less be you know always the star witnesses for the prosecution they're supposed to you know know the most and and be most familiar with all the facts and the charges and and I think that's a great example of how simply being trained to enforce the law is not the same thing as knowing the law. And, you know, that's why Joseph has paid the big bucks. That's why, you know, there are constitutional rights to have a defense attorney at all stages of a criminal proceeding because there is a distinction between knowing the law and enforcing the law and... You know, again, that goes back to my original point with ensuring that everyone does their job correctly. And this has just been a breakdown as to how, even though everybody thought that they were doing their job correctly, they actually weren't. And, you know, we see that time and time again where things that are done for just long periods of time and just kind of status quo, how those somehow get anointed okay. But just because something is done for a long period of time doesn't mean that it is actually lawful and doesn't mean that it's okay. So that's just a very kudos to you for being able to get that big, not quite Perry Mason moment on cross-examination, but a big, sounds like a factual win for you, especially as it relates to your closing. So that sounds like quite the prosecution case in chief. Let me ask you, I know that you said that pre-trial you had made a motion to dismiss. In Massachusetts, are you able to, are you awarded an opportunity at the midpoint to also ask for the case to be dismissed based on the evidence that had been, been presented at that point? And if you are, did you do so in this case?
1: We are. Yep. So once the prosecution is done with their case in chief, then we can move for a directed verdict. And so in this case, I did move for directed verdicts as I do in most every case. Um, And most cases, the judge rejects it and says, look, it's a matter for the jury. But in this case, I think we got three out of the 20. There might have been one dismissed prior to trial. So it might have been 19 that went to the initially. But I think we got three The, the impersonation of a police officer counts were directed out. So that means that they were the judge found my client not guilty without even having to have us put on a case or go to the jury because there was just no evidence that he purported to be a police officer. Yeah. None at all. So that was a big win. That, yeah. that felt like a little bit of like momentum, like, all right, something eh. here. And, and so, you know, the, the difficulty usually is that the judge has to look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecutor, which yep. is why usually they, they're rejected. But in this case, there was just no evidence that my client said he was anything but a constable. So, uh, so we, we got there after the prosecution closed their case. And then the next thing is we, we determine whether or not we put on a case.
0: Well, that is so that's such amazing. Yeah. I mean, you're totally right that like taking judges rarely grant that motion for a directed verdict, but in cases when there are multiple counts that can have a, A subliminal, huge advantage, I I think, because in jury selection, the judge, at least in my jurisdiction, the judge always reads the complaint as filed to the juries just to see if on its face any juror doesn't think that this is the case for them just based on the nature of their charges. And so they're told on the onset how many total charges there are. So then to go to closing and say, hold up. There aren't as many charges as when we first started that. I think it gives a little nod to the defense. One, I think it has to raise your confidence, which is just going to impact their overall closing. But two, I think if you're able, or if the juries pick up on that, they have to see that we're in a completely different situation now than we were at the beginning of this trial, whether it's one count dismissed or in your case three, even if there are still a bunch more to address. It just shows that there were, quote unquote, some issues with the case and and doubt as to some of the charges. So that that sounds like a fantastic result. And definitely a 17 count complaint is a slightly more digestible pill to swallow than a 20 count complaint. So, you know, really interested. You had mentioned basically that you you did, your client did testify. Um, Give us a rundown of your case in chief, how you think that testimony went and what were some of the key factors that you knew you were going to harp on in your closing argument?
1: Well, so my client was the only witness that we called, but we did actually have another witness lined up. So one of the constables who was working, I think I mentioned this, that there was a police officer from a nearby town who worked part-time for this constable nonprofit agency. And we initially had him ready to testify. He was going to testify that he worked with the agency. He was going to testify that he had one of those Glocks. Even though he was a police officer, he believed that he and his fellow constables were able to have those Glocks. He knew about it. He took no adverse action against any of his fellow constables for violating the law by having those glocks or by doing any of the actions that my client had also done. But right before he was about to testify, there was a break and the prosecutor actually brought this up. He said, judge, I think that one of the defense witnesses may have a fifth amendment right. Can we appoint him counsel? I don't know how it works in in your jurisdiction, but in mine, when either side brings that up, the uh, the judge will usually There's a duty attorney, somebody who's there assigned for the day to take cases, and that person will take witnesses and they'll determine whether or not there's a potential Fifth Amendment privilege that by testifying, could this person be incriminating themselves? I thought nothing of it because, again, my client was so confident and our whole theory was that he did nothing wrong. However, the attorney who was appointed after reviewing everything, he determined there was a Fifth Amendment privilege And that witness, despite being so aligned with us and and my client, he ultimately apologetically said, I I can't waive my Fifth Amendment. I I value my career and I I just can't risk potentially putting myself in jeopardy of getting charged. So that was a big blow, actually, to us because he would have been the only other witness and he would have been a strong witness as a police officer on our side. I felt like that was going to be
0: huge. I could see that. I, I could totally see that again, because now how, how do you not argue that there's reasonable doubt when you have law enforcement on one side saying one thing and law enforcement on the other side saying something different that 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 in and of itself is doubt. And so I don't know if that's why the prosecutor thought to do that. You know, that would be the one of the first times I think in my experience that I've heard the the prosecutor doing that, initiating the the counseling of the witness, I think normally. I think that's normally a little bit of a defense tactic just because it could maybe prevent an extra witness coming into the case. But I think, yeah, that I think the prosecutor had to know that having law enforcement testify to your client's benefit would would cause a real issue in the case. So that does seem like a big blow. But, you know, I'm interested to see, you know, how you ultimately wrap that up in your closing argument. So
1: the client did testify. I mean, he he still testified, even though he was our only witness and then the source of our case in chief. So he testified, I think he testified at at the end of day one, and then we came back in day two and he finished. He was really compelling. I mean, I think he came across as authentic. He owned up to to what he did. There was, again, no dispute, which is unusual. But I think, you know, he he was a guy who was a professional. He was a tax preparation professional, and then he also started this constable business on the side. And he was a smart guy. I mean, he really even though he wasn't legally trained, he had done a lot of research in building up this constable business. And so I think that the jury being able to see and hear him probably helped too. So, and the prosecutor really didn't get a whole lot on cross-examination. I mean, there just wasn't much to get out. Everything that you would normally get, like, oh, you did this or you did that, was pretty much a yes. And anything that purported to be like, oh, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Or doesn't the law say this? My client was able to, in a respectful and coherent way, say, well, no, actually, here's how I interpret it. And actually, here's here's what the law says. So that was basically our case in chief. And I think it, it worked out pretty
0: well. I have to imagine that was a fantastic feeling because... <laughs> I just know I've heard too many stories of cases going great and the attorney feeling good about it. And then the last piece of the puzzle is the client testifying, you know, sometimes against counsel's advice and it completely tanking the case. Because I think that one of the things that juries consider when a client testifies isn't so much whether or not they're admitting or deflecting against the facts. I think it, if they think that the client is lying, pretty much, it almost doesn't matter what the charge is. You know, they're not going to like that they're feeling lied to, and and if they do, they're going It's going to lead them more towards a guilty verdict than a not guilty, even if the other elements of the crime might not. Have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So, in my opinion, I do think that that's always a little added risk of clients testifying, um, not only potentially sinking them sit, their own ship, but just how or whether or not they're going to be deemed credible. And so, what a what a fantastic way to have a case in chief go for you to have your client keep his composure, to not be rattled by the uh, prosecutor, and to leave you feeling uh, confidence in the case. You know, as you were going into your closing argument though, what would you say your biggest challenge or worry about addressing was?
1: Well, I think that there's always the worry, again, that somebody's going to perceive what what the client did. And th- I mean, in this case, I think that I was worried the jury would think what the client did was just reckless, just un- unreasonable, even if not against the law. Like you said, I mean, there's always just perceptions and it's not always about the legality. We don't know what juries will say and and deliberate on, but I do think there's this human element of, do you think this was reasonable? And I mean, nobody's ever heard of somebody just creating their their own law enforcement entity. And I think that, you know, would I advise my client to have done this in the first place? I don't know, probably not. If he had come to me and said, do you think this is a good idea? So I was just worried that I wasn't going to be able to convey that you know, look, you have to stick with the law, you have to stick with the, the the burden that the prosecutor needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And even if you you don't like what you heard, or even if you think maybe he did something wrong, or even more likely than not, you know, that's not enough. And so I, I just, I guess my, my overarching theme was that in this case, the client had been adamant that what he was doing, he believed in, that he he took steps to speak with the right people in the right places. And even if it didn't come across in the way that he perceived it to, to the other person, he was consistent. He was consistent both before he was charged, and then he was consistent with the police when he talked to the police, and then he was consistent on the witness stand. So I really had that uh, sort of wind in my sails that I could hone in on. And I think that, you know, I was able to just really focus on the client and his credibility and his reasonableness. And in contrast the police who investigated him and the ATF agent who investigated him really not doing their job. And to rely on an incomplete police investigation where the agents involved don't even really understand the law completely and they pick and choose what they want to enforce and how they want to frame it would be unfair to convict a client based on on those factors.
0: Couldn't agree more. Did did you find yourself I'm interested, did you find yourself attacking a specific element of the charges, or did you find yourself more so making an affirmative defense of basically numerous statutes actually apply that allow constables this privilege? You know, was it more so the attacking the element or putting on the, the affirmative defense of the statutes?
1: More of the affirmative defense. And it, and it's sort of funny because the affirmative defense thing, it's, it's not so clear cut like a defense of, you know, self-defense or a right. defense of criminal responsibility or something like that, because it's so unlike any other case that at least I've had. And it's not like it doesn't fit the normal parameters of a of a typical defense. So I guess you could call it an affirmative defense. And that's what I honed in on. Interestingly, just flashing ahead for a sec while it's on my mind. The jury had a couple of questions. I don't remember what they all were. There were two or three, but I remember at one point, I think the final question, you know, they deliberate for a while, then they'd come out, then they deliberate, then they come out with a question. And one of them was, does it matter or how like what is the relevance of the defendant being a constable? And I remember there was a big battle over the wording and how the judge should respond to it, essentially, like does it matter? Does it not? That was my whole theory of the case. And I remember that whatever the answer was, I, I wish I could recall exactly, but the the judge essentially reiterated, you know, if you find that these elements are met and that the prosecutor has proved beyond a reasonable doubt, then you must convict the client. And, and I felt like the way that that was put was such a death knell to us. I felt mm. like that was the end of it because frankly, if it wasn't for him being a constable, all of this would have been criminal behavior. And so I, like him and I, I remember we were out there and he had a couple of friends with him, uh, maybe a family member, and we were just so distraught. And he was like asking questions about what's going to happen when I'm brought in handcuffs? Am I going to be assigned a, a, a cot or am I going to be in an individual cell? He was already like, he's going to be carted off to jail based on that. Like we were feeling pretty good about the case. And then once that answer, we were like, Gosh, the judge really took away any chance of victory here.
0: Oh my god, I could I could totally imagine the type of emotional roller coaster those moments were to getting what would I think be perceivably an amazing jury note. Right, like you hit the head on. I mean, how, like that is the crux of the case. You're asking yourselves the questions that I am posing to you to determine the case, and so like the fact that you're having a question about that question is it should be doubt um but yeah you know the the limitations that we have in the ability to respond or what the response is to jurors can have huge impacts as to then how the further deliberations are done and so th- that's unfortunate that obviously i i think that 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 does sound like a very actually pretty like hands-on answer i i think you know a lot of judges try to almost answer the questions hands off like the response will be like you have everything that you need to consider right and and, and it sounds like he kind of went that way but definitely with like a certain skew or a certain leaning kind of way so That's what another wrinkle to add to the case like there weren't already enough. It's like, you know, he did you the favor of dismissing three of the charges, but then, you know, he tried to make up for it uh, on the back end. So let you know, let's break this down. You know, we went to trial on 20 counts. We had three of them dismissed halfway. Sounds like the jury deliberated for a couple of days, which I think in, in a high volume type of complaint you, you want, because it just is inherently means that they're spending a, a good amount of time on each charge. After the jury did the deliberations, what was the final tally of the verdict that they returned?
1: Incredibly, we cut back. Everything that went to the jury came back as a not guilty.
0: Let's go!
1: (laughs) Yeah, man, that was like my (laughs) client was like in tears, like in a in in the most like relief way ever. It was, I mean, honestly, it was. I've done a lot of big cases, and I've done cases probably where someone's facing more time, but this will always stand out as just one of the the big victories because of the amount and the I don't know just so many factors it, it was a huge my client was able to go home to his family that night when he thought he was going to go to
0: prison it was huge again what an emotional roller coaster to you know have it feeling like a good case and then having that devastating response to you know still just the 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 horror of the complaint itself, you know, Joseph, that is a fantastic verdict. I I know your client is and was extremely impressed with your advocacy. I'm impressed just hearing about it after the fact. And, you know, this is exactly why it was a purpose that I wanted to create this show was so that people could hear this amazing work that criminal defense attorneys are doing all across the country. You know, it's so much more than being a sleazy, sharky you know, reputation or dump truck. You know, by plea deals that is portrayed so much in the media in Hollywood. That that that's just not the case. That there are true, you know, warriors in the trenches who are doing work that a lot of people would uh, strive away from. And and in this particular case, you had uh, two attorneys who didn't want anything to do with taking this matter to the box. And so, what a fantastic result. You know, the last question we end every episode with is we get allow our guests to explain to the members of the jury. What is the significance of taking a matter to the box?
1: The significance, I think, is is one testing the government's strength of the case. I mean, if you don't go to the jury, if you don't take a case to trial, you're relying on the police and, and their reports. And it's always one sided not to disparage anybody. But, you know, the police obviously have a job to do and they often will take a complaint. They'll take somebody's mm-hmm. say so and they'll just investigate uh, on what they said. They, they won't always check with other witnesses. They won't follow up with leads. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten police reports where I think in my mind, geez, well, why didn't they ask this? Why didn't they see if there's surveillance? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they look at receipts or whatever? And so I think that it keeps the police from, you know, intimidating people into taking pleas for charges that are either inappropriate altogether or that are overblown. And I think that every day there are innocent people that are charged, but there's also people that Are charged with more serious conduct than they actually committed. And so uh, it takes a tremendous amount of courage for a client to go to trial because ultimately it's their choice. And I think that having people like you and me and and a lot of our colleagues who are willing to take it to the box is so important because it's easy to plead out. It's easy to say, look, let's make a deal, let's try to mitigate. And that's appropriate in some cases, it certainly is. But you have to be willing to take the cases that. Should go to trial to trial, and when a client wants to go to trial, you gotta be sharp, and you gotta be you know willing to have that um, drive so that you can keep the experience alive. And I think it actually helps give you a little bit more uh, weight when you're talking to a prosecutor. If they know that you're an attorney that's willing to take take cases to trial, then I think you're serving all your clients better, even the ones that take plea deals, because the prosecutor knows that you're not a pushover. They know that. You're not just going to accept anything that they offer. And so I think that you're serving everybody by going to the box.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think next time you go against that prosecutor and you offer him a continued diversion as opposed to a complete walk, he might reconsider that how they treat that case. case. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, uh, again, Joseph, I really appreciate you coming on, spending a Freedom Friday with us and and sharing just an amazing trial story. Uh, And just thank you so much.